The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think the reason Clinton versus Jones is unanimous opinion against presidential immunity in that case is not actually because of the nature of the conduct as much as it is the temporal fact that this happened before Clinton was president. And therefore, there was no question of Clinton didn't have to necessarily, you know, change his presidential behavior to deal with this pre-existing conduct. So I I think the issue for, for Judge Maida and why my personal intuition, though we'll obviously see how this goes, and it could go either way, is that presidential immunity probably does apply here under what I think is the best reading of Nixon versus Fitzgerald, is that speaking to the public about elections and electoral fraud is something that presidents can and conceivably do as part of their official acts. Now, the problem, of course, is that the President Trump was lying. But that's a different question whether President should get immunity. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 12th, 2022. On Monday, January 10th, a federal district court in D.C. heard oral argument in Thompson v. Trump. The case considers civil claims against Donald Trump and others for their roles in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. It raises a number of complicated legal issues, including whether Trump is immune from these kinds of claims whether it's possible to establish a conspiracy among perpetrators of the attack, and how the First Amendment factors in. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 12th, 2022. Benjamin Wittes and Alan Rosenstein on Thompson v. Trump, Presidential Immunity, and the First Amendment. So I wanted to start by just doing some quick background on the case talk about the three suits that are consolidated there, the claims that the court heard yesterday. So Ben, do you want to start with what the cases are, what they're trying to accomplish? And then Alan, you can talk us through the legal claims that were discussed yesterday. Sounds good. So the cases are of a variety of civil actions alleging uh, violations of the civil provisions of 1985, 18 U.S.C. 1985, which creates a uh, civil action for activity that amounts to a conspiracy to obstruct the functionings of government. And uh, the there are a number of suits here. There's one 
uh, by members of Congress against a variety of individuals and organizations, up to and including uh, the former president. There is one um, that involves members of Congress. And so you had yesterday a, a consolidated bunch of motions to dismiss, uh, which raise all kinds of issues from, in the case of the president, whether the president is immune entirely from this type of civil litigation under a case called Nixon v. Fitzgerald, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, so that issue was uh, before the court to whether the plaintiffs had standing under the statute to whether the case was in the uh, um, barred by the First Amendment, since uh, a lot of these organizations and individuals were gathering to speak, right, and to engage in political activity, to uh, whether there is a claim by um, Representative Mo Brooks uh, that the Westfall Act really does cover this suit, and we can get into the details of that. So there's a, a gazillion different issues in front of this poor district judge, Meta, who I think did actually a pretty remarkable job uh, just in uh, of case management and giving everybody a chance to argue these matters uh, without particularly tipping his own hand about where he's going. I guess that's the sort of broad setup that, you know, over uh, almost five hours, uh, he heard all of these bases for possible dismissal of the case and will presumably rule on them in the coming uh, weeks or months. Great. And I want to just take a quick step back, because I think in the in the context of the question of who is going to be held accountable, and in particular, the question interests a lot of people of whether Donald Trump himself will be held accountable for what happened on January 6th. The, the specifics of who the plaintiffs are here and what they are arguing, um, some of which you covered, Ben, um, I think is is interesting because it sort of exposes what is actually available in the civil context to look for accountability. We already know that the the quickest route to find accountability, namely impeachment, didn't work out. And actually, Senator McConnell, when he was explaining why he was voting against impeachment, said that the proper remedy was going to be in civil suits just like these. So the just really quickly, the three cases... Thompson is brought by members of Congress, as Ben said, um, bringing suit under the statute that Ben referenced, which is part of the Ku Klux Klan Act. A suit by Swalwell alleges a bunch of things involving incitement of assaults and even terrorism charge. Um, and then there's a suit by two Capitol Police officers that includes some D.C. law claims that we won't get into here, um, but also aiding and abetting assault and battery et cetera, et cetera. So like I said, we yesterday only heard a subset of the various legal claims. I think, uh, Alan, why don't you talk us through what those main claims were, how the judge organized oral argument, and then we'll dig into each one in turn. Sure. So Ben listed the, the main ones. The way the judge thought about it was really that there were four fundamentally different claims here. So the first is the issue of presidential immunity as it applies to Trump. Uh, the second is the question of whether or not the plaintiffs had sufficiently pled conspiracy. 
Um, so it's important to appreciate the procedural posture of this hearing. This was a motion to dismiss. So the question is, you know, taking the plaintiff's allegations as true, or at the very least, making reasonable inferences, you know, have the plaintiffs done enough to establish the elements of conspiracy? Uh, the third was the First Amendment question. The fourth was Representative Brooks's claim that he should not be a party to this case, that the United States should instead be substituted for him because his actions on January 6th were within the scope of his employment. And then fifth, um, uh, Natalie, you mentioned the, the DC and common law claims, uh, which we're not going to talk about. Uh, you know, there are different ways of, of slicing the issues. Um, I, I think it's best to think of it as sort of two different buckets of legal issues. The, the first is the presidential immunity issue and Brooks's Westfall issue, um, because they both fundamentally turn on the same question, which is what is the scope of employment? What is the scope of official acts of the president in one case or a member of Congress in the other case? And how does that relate to the events of January 6th? Were they a campaign event? Were they not a campaign event? Does it matter if they were a campaign event? That I think is fundamentally the the core of this litigation and the most important part of it. Um, And I'll, I'll explain why in in a second. The the second set of legal issues, I think, is around, I think, really fundamentally the First Amendment um, and whether or not a a charge of conspiracy or allegation of conspiracy can be brought where the overt acts here are core political speech. Judge Maida himself recognized that the conspiracy pleading issue and the First Amendment issue kind of blended a little bit. Um, So I I think those are the two most important issues. The reason I think the the immunity issue is most important is because, and this gets back to to Natalie, your point about where accountability comes from. Civil immunity, I mean, whatever Senator McConnell may have said, he pretty obviously said that for political reasons to get himself out of having to deal with the impeachment and, and trial in the Senate. Civil immunity is obviously not the best way of holding Trump accountable for a number of reasons. I mean, we're not fundamentally not dealing with a particularly substantial penalty. We're dealing with monetary penalties that they're just, this is not going to be the main way that we should be responding to January 6th. Obviously the main way was either going to be impeachment, which, which failed um, or rather the, the trial failed um, or most importantly, it's going to be political accountability going forward. But as a matter of separation of powers, law, it's really, really important actually to get more clarity on the issue of presidential immunity. And so um, I, I think the most interesting part of the the oral argument for me, and the part that was frankly the, the hardest, um, and I think Judge Mehta recognizes this as well, uh, was the issue around presidential immunity, and in particular, whether Trump's actions, giving his speech on January 6th, making the tweets, uh, whether that was part of his official duties as president. So I agree with that with a caveat. I also think the First Amendment issues are very important and very substantial. But I I agree with you that the question that this case uniquely raises, those First Amendment issues could come up in a lot of contexts. The, the questions that this case is really unique uh, for raising are the questions of uh, presidential uh, amenability to civil suit under circumstances like this. Yeah. So let's start with presidential immunity as a baseline. Can you talk through, um, Ben, I know you actually wrote about this several years ago with Steve Vladek on Lawfare, the state of the law. Anticipating a suit exactly like this one, in fact. Indeed. Um, so can you talk us through what the state of the law is and in particular what Nixon v. Fitzgerald says and Clinton v. Jones says or doesn't say? Yeah, so it's a it is a bit of a thicket, but it's a thicket with very few thorns. Uh, so 
Nixon v. Fitzgerald says as a general proposition that the president is civilly immune for any act within the outer reaches of his official responsibilities as president. So Jim Comey cannot uh, sue the president for firing him. I think that's black letter law under Fitzgerald, even if it were, you know, he fired him because he's white and Donald Trump hates white people, right? Even if it were for the most invidious of reasons, the president is immune from civil liability for something that firing people is within his job description. Therefore, that's it. He's immune. Fitzgerald left open the question of, though it has this very broad language, the outer reaches of his official responsibilities, it left open the question uh, whether he could be liable. And in fact, the implication is he is not immune for action that is purely private. And this arose in the context of the Paula Jones litigation against Bill Clinton, because as listeners uh, above a certain age will recall, Paula Jones accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment for activity while he was governor of Arkansas before he ever became president. And so the argument became and prevailed nine to nothing in the Supreme Court uh, that though Nixon v. Fitzgerald immunizes your acts while you are president within the four corners of the outer reaches of your job description, it does not immunize pre-presidential conduct, uh, nor does it prevent a lawsuit from going forward involving pre-presidential conduct while you are now in office as president. And so I think taking the, the two cases together, they stand for the idea that there is some universe of activity that has to be small and well-defined that is that you know sexually harassing somebody before you took the oath of office is counts as that is so purely private that it does not get the benefit of Fitzgerald presidential immunity and that of course raises the question of the current case which is okay if while you are president you go to a rally, not organized by your campaign, but in a rally that is designed to advance your candidacy, right? And you speak at that rally sort of in your capacity as a candidate or a losing candidate who's objecting to the loss, but there's no, no obvious presidential function to your being there. And in the course of speaking at a campaign type privately organized rally, you happen to uh, stoke an insurrection, which uh, that's not listed in Article 2 as one of the presidential functions, is that conduct within the four corners, the outer reaches of your role as president, or is that purely private conduct? And uh, as Alan says, I think this is actually, it sounds like an easy question. It's actually a super hard question. I think Judge Mehta clearly had some trouble with it yesterday. And I think it will divide the D.C. Circuit and is likely to divide the Supreme Court. 
So, Alan, tell us about what came up yesterday specifically that indicated the trouble that Judge Mehta was having with this line drawing exercise of what was versus wasn't presidential conduct that would be covered by presidential immunity. So one thing that I appreciated from Judge Mehta was just his honesty. I mean, I think three hours in, it was a very long uh, hearing. So I think approximately three hours in, he just said, this is a hard case. To be clear, I find this case hard. And I, I found that very refreshing. Um, and, and, and so I think we should all, if we're all finding this case hard, that, that's okay. This is a hard case. So I, I think that the, the problem that Judge Mehta is facing is that neither side here is giving him a particularly palatable answer to the question of presidential immunity. On the one hand, the, the lawyer for President Trump offered a very clean, very clear, very simple to apply test, which is, and I'm not really even paraphrasing here, literally anytime the president opens his mouth to speak, by definition, that is an official act and therefore presidential immunity applies. Now, that's an easy test to apply. Shoot that guy, says <laughs> the president. Exactly. That's an easy test to apply, but that seems very overbroad. And Judge Maida seemed to be having none of that. The problem is, on the other hand, the plaintiff's lawyers did not do, I think, a particularly good job of giving Judge Maida a good narrow limiting principle that he can write in his opinion if he wants to deny Donald Trump presidential immunity in this case. There were questions about, well, nothing to do with campaigns is official. There were suggestions that, well, because what judge what the Trump was doing was inciting an insurrection, that's not official. But the problem is that neither of these arguments get to the what I think is the heart of Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which is not, I think, that there is some analytically clear distinction uh, that's easy to find between official and unofficial acts, right? There is none. And, and any time in law you start torturing yourself um, about these clear analytical distinctions, right? My day job is as a law professor. So I have to teach these analytical distinctions to my students and try to figure them out myself. And whenever I find that I'm having trouble articulating them or my students are having trouble understanding some distinction, it's usually because we've lost track of the function of that distinction. And going back to that function is very clarifying. The function of presidential immunity as articulated in Nixon versus Fitzgerald is not, I think, to do some logical exercise in what is or is not official presidential acts. It's rather to recognize that in order for the president to have the necessary discretion that the president needs, or that we might think the president needs, you have to err on the side of immunizing actions by the president, right? So sure, there may be some line that is the quote unquote right answer to what is official and not official, but that may not be actually the right line at which to draw immunity. You may need to draw immunity beyond what is the core presidential responsibilities in order to give the president a guarantee and confidence that he or she do not have to second guess everything they do because of fear of, of liability. And that, for what it's worth, I think is the reason that you, know, you have Nixon versus Fitzgerald on the one hand versus Clinton v. Jones on the other hand. You know, I think the reason Clinton versus Jones is a unanimous opinion against presidential immunity in that case is not actually because of the nature of the conduct as much as it is the temporal fact that this happened before Clinton was president. And therefore, there was no question of you know, Clinton didn't have to necessarily you know, change his presidential behavior to deal with this pre-existing conduct. So I, I think the issue for, for Judge Maida and why my 
personal intuition, though we'll obviously see how this goes, and it could go either way, is that presidential immunity probably does apply here under what I think is the best reading of Nixon versus Fitzgerald, is that speaking to the public about elections and electoral fraud is something that presidents can and conceivably do as part of their official acts. Now, the problem, of course, is that the President Trump was lying. But that's a different question whether President should get immunity. I mean, the issue, you know, as the Supreme Court made very clear in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, immunity does not hinge on the legality of the president's conduct. It hinges on whether that conduct is plausibly within the outer bounds of the president's official actions. I want to push back on one piece of that, though, and that is, is it fair to say that Clinton v. Jones is solely about defining what constitutes official presidential action by reference to the temporal piece of things? Or is it the case that there is some reasoning in that case as well that talks about how, you know, sexual assault couldn't possibly be construed as an official presidential action? And if that's not the case, if that is not what the case stands for, because that is not what was before the court, and like any Supreme Court decision, I think it was reasonable to expect that the Supreme Court would not take any more of an expansive view of what the constitutional question at issue was that they absolutely needed to. But say as a as a thought exercise, sexual assault that a president commits while in office is the argument that Fitzgerald applies, given that Fitzgerald is on the, the reasoning of Fitzgerald is that the president has to be protected in order to be able to perform his duties and not have to second guess everything he does, et cetera, et cetera. Does that really mean that there is no way to identify certain conduct like sexual assaults that just can't possibly be construed as an official presidential function? Doesn't that just swallow the rule? And isn't that really just saying we're granting presidential immunity because we don't want to bother the president while he's in office. And so he can do whatever he wants. I think that's totally fair. Uh, and, and and I think it's it's important, you know, when you read Fitzgerald and 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 Clinton v. Jones, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot in these cases. There's a lot in the holdings. There's a lot in the dicta. The, the, to be clear, right, the doctrine here is not clear. And so I think there are plausible arguments either way. I, I do think, though, that that even to the extent, and, and, and Natalie, I think you're totally right, that Clinton v. Jones does talk about the fact that, look, sexual harassment is just not within the job description of the president. I don't think it does, but Clinton v. Jones does talk about that, by the way. I think it is entirely predicated on the pre-presidential nature of the conduct. Well, so 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 let, let, let's bracket that for a second. Let, let's imagine that there's some language, right, that says, and by the way, you know, it's not like sexual harassment as part of the president's official actions. I think the problem here is that I actually do think that speaking to the public about your claims of national electoral fraud is 100% within the official duties of the president. Now, here's the thing. It's also within the official duties of the president not to lie, right? So I could imagine, right, the Supreme Court making a distinction there, except that that would require, you know, the courts to adjudicate issues of immunity on the merits, when the whole point of adjudicating issues of immunity, or at least as I understand the point as articulated in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, is not to get to the merits. I think the deeper issue is this, that 
the rule of Nixon versus Fitzgerald or the strong presumption that we want to give the president a large leeway, right, operates if you assume the president will be within parameters, right? If you assume you're going to have a fundamentally normal president. And sure, you know, they might do some illegal things because that's what presidents do sometimes, but they're still like fundamentally good faith presidents. Donald Trump is not that. And so we have a bit of a round peg square hole situation. We're operating against the backdrop of immunity doctrines that assume a certain baseline level of lawfulness in presidential conduct. And you're dealing with a delusional narcissist who lacks the ability to tell his own personal interest apart from that of the nation. And we need a new immunity doctrine, which is why I do think that uh, this case could easily, and I think probably should, get its way up to the Supreme Court. We we need much more clarity on what presidential immunity really means, at least in an age of Trump and Trump-like candidates. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah, so I agree with that. I would like to propose Alan a test for Judge Mehta uh, in a fashion that the lawyers before him did not, which is uh, that a act, including a public act, by the president should be considered purely private if it serves no conceivably articulable public purpose. So if the president goes out and gives a you know, a a speech about uh, voter fraud uh, and the need to do something about voter fraud, every single sentence in it can be false. It can be totally defamatory. He is immune. But if the president goes out in a fashion that is essentially a, a, a rally in support of his own candidacy, nobody can articulate what the public purpose of that presence is. Now, if his lawyers can say, okay, he was there doing X public function and Y public function and Z public function, then he prevails. But uh, what if he, you know, these Capitol Police who uh, got injured, what if he knifed one of them? Is he immune from that because he was speaking publicly? I think there's a there's a limiting principle problem in the other direction too, which is the nature of which you are alluded to, the the idea that the four corners of his 
the outer reaches of the function kind of swallow all conduct is something you kind of have to avoid here too. I think you can you can draw the limiting principle, but I think the problem you run into is either it's so weak that it doesn't actually accomplish what I think we're all trying to figure out how to provide for Judge Maida, right? In case he's listening to this podcast, which I'm sure he's not, which is some way of not giving Trump immunity in this case. If you're Judge Meta and you're listening to this podcast, uh, wave your hand uh, uh, just in the air, just little We'll, we'll notice. Thank, thank you, Your Honor. Um, right. What we're, what we're all trying to figure out, right, is can you have a limiting principle that on the one hand does not provide immunity in this case, but on the, on the other hand is consistent with Nixon versus Fitzgerald? And I think the problem for, for your test, Ben, is that you know, depending on how you define conceivable public purpose, you either define it you know, so broadly that you're just kind of restating Trump's extreme position or unfortunately, you are conflicting with Nixon versus Fitzgerald. So remember, right, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the issue is that the allegation is that Nixon fired someone illegally, right? And Nixon says, you can't sue me for this because firing people is, you know, hiring and firing is part of what I do. And the court says, that's right. Now, the court admits that, you know, because of the take care clause, firing people illegally is not within the public purpose. But explicitly says immunity does not rely on a finding that the action was legal. So how do you apply that in this case? Well, I think the most straightforward way of doing so, as much as it pains me to say, is that speaking to the public about electoral fraud is 100% within the public acts of the president. Hang on a second. There's another content neutral way to describe what he did, which is speaking in a capacity as a candidate at a campaign-related event on non-policy matters. But, but I don't think that is a non-policy matter, right? I, I, think, I think the problem is, right? So, so for, first, I, I have some doubts about whether the campaign-non-campaign distinction that absolutely exists in federal campaign law should apply to presidential immunity, which is, I think, fundamentally a constitutional separation of powers question, right? But I think the, 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 the tricky thing here is the allegation that Trump is making, right, is not you should vote for me, right, but that our constitution is currently under attack because of voter fraud. Again, a total lie. But nevertheless, is a statement about the, the faithful execution of the laws. Now, if you want to say the part of, of Nixon versus Fitzgerald that said that presidential immunity does not rely on the lawfulness of the conduct, that part is wrong. And the Supreme Court should modify that. That's fine. I, I, I may be all for that. But if Nixon versus Fitzgerald is still the settled law, I just don't see how you get around that problem, which is why I think this thing is headed for the Supreme Court. One more question on this, Alan, though, because I'm, I'm hung up on the limiting principle problem on the other side. What if Donald Trump had shown up and I don't know who he was standing next to, but in the middle of the speech had just knifed, you know, Mo Brooks in the throat and he bled out while Trump is finishing his speech. You know, we got to go fight or you're not going to have a country anymore. And when I say fight, I mean peacefully like this. <laughs> um, so now, granted, there could be criminal liability for that in the District of Columbia, but now somebody sues him and he says, well, this is conduct arising out of a speech before the public. 
that's part of my presidential function. It doesn't matter if I stab somebody in the middle of the speech. Uh, you're not allowed to look at the content of the activity. So my, my question is, where does this end on the other side? Like, what, what's the category when you said, you know, Meta seemed to accept that the president's contention, which is anything that comes out of my mouth is immune. You seem to be saying that approvingly, but you're also articulating something that's awfully similar to it. So where's the where's the end point in your view? I mean, this is this is this is the tricky part of line drawing, right? Um, You know, my my intuition is that what you should do is you should look at historical practice of the sorts of things that presidents do. You know, the way I the way I characterize it is that presidents routinely speak to the public of matters of profound national concern. They don't usually shiv people, or at least I don't know of any presidents that have done so as part of a speech. Now, you know, to argue against myself, you know, the, the other way of interpreting this, and I think this is what the the plaintiff's lawyers were trying to do, and it, you know, make make may well carry the day if that's where we want to draw the line, is that what President Trump was doing was not simply talking to the public about matters of of national concern. He was trying to sick a mob on the Capitol. Right. Um, and that is something that no president has ever done and is essentially the verbal equivalent of shiving someone next to you. Now, that then, and maybe this is what we should turn to next, that raises the issue of, but under the First Amendment, we actually tend to draw a very sharp distinction between saying things and instigating violence, uh, unless we can show a clear, immediate nexus. Um, so that is kind of why the First Amendment is also hanging over this, this issue. But look, the line drawing is hard is hard either way. And the question then becomes, do you want to err on the side of giving the president more or less discretion? Again, I don't necessarily have a super strong prior commitment to that. I'm just squinting at Nixon versus Fitzgerald and then trying to predict how the Supreme Court will go. And like my sense is that between Nixon versus Fitzgerald and the 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court, they're going to err on the side of immunity. But I have no idea. I tend to agree. I want to propose an addition to Ben's recommendation for a line drawing, which is let's not take an absurdist view of Fitzgerald's. It was not considering a hypothetical question of whether the president should be immune for absolutely everything, even if it did use the term absolute immunity. And the reality is that we should think about Fitzgerald in the context in which the court came to that conclusion, which was that the reason for it is a respect for separation of powers, and the president has to be allowed to conduct presidential functions. And Ben's suggestion that the test should be whether or not the act in question or speech in question relates to an official presidential act or function should be married with the idea of, if not, then the president is not owed deference under this test. That's the whole purpose of creating this rule. Okay, so I think because we've touched on it already, I do want to turn to the First Amendment questions. I agree with both of you that those are very tricky questions and important in the bigger picture of things, not only with respect to this case. I do want to come back to the conspiracy question if we can at the end, but let's start with the First Amendment questions. So again, let's begin with 
the basics of where the law is. The during oral argument, much of the discussion was focused on the Brandenburg case. So, Alan, why don't you tell us what is Brandenburg? What's it about? What's the state of the First Amendment as relevant during these oral arguments? So Brandenburg is a 1969 case in which the Supreme Court articulated what is still um, the legal test for when someone can be held criminally or civilly liable for, for speech that results in violence. And the test that the Supreme Court set out is that liability is generally not available in the case of uh, speech unless you have, quote, advocacy that is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, right? So it's not enough simply that someone says something and that because of that, there was violence, right? The, the, the speaker has to say things that they intend to and that basically pretty quickly result in the sorts of lawless action that the speaker intended. Now, the devil, as in many of these First Amendment cases, is in the details. And there's a body of case law that has developed trying to apply the Brandenburg test to the facts. What I think is, is fair to say um, is that the test is very demanding. Right? The reason that the Supreme Court issued its decision in Brandenburg was because it wanted to signal that the First Amendment is generally very protective right, of political speech of general speech, even if that speech results in violence. And so the bar tends to be exceptionally high, right? It's not infinitely high. You know, there are absolutely cases, right, where, you know, you're in the middle of a riot and you point to a person, you say, hey, let's go, let's go kill that person. And then that person is, you know, harmed, right? That, that would definitely meet the Brandenburg test. But as a general matter, even saying things like, we might need to resort to violence, right? And then violence occurs, that is generally not sufficient, or as in the case of Brandenburg, which involved a, as I recall, a Klan rally in Ohio, uh, there's an explicit exhortation on the part of the speaker to kill blacks and Jews. And so it, it, is, it is not a subtle uh, invocation of the need for violence. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's also important to, to appreciate that, that, you know, Brandenburg and the protections that Brandenburg has offered have not been exclusively used by the right. They have been used as as much by by the left. Right. There's plenty of fiery rhetoric um, on all sides of the political spectrum uh, that has been protected uh, by by Brandenburg. So it's important to appreciate the, the difficult analysis that Judge Maida has to make in that broader context. I think the problem for the plaintiffs is that when you actually look at what Trump was saying, the words fall far, far short of what tends to pass the Brandenburg test, right? You know, it's much less than, for example, in the the exhortation, as Ben put it, in the Brandenburg case itself. You know, Trump is talking about fighting. Well, I mean, fighting is not by itself a particularly inflammatory word. So I think in order for the plaintiffs to to, to meet their First Amendment burden, you have to add a bunch of context to it, right? You have to add the context that Trump was spending months discrediting the election. You have to add the context that Trump invited people to come to D.C. You have to add the context that Trump is the president, and therefore the president's words probably have a bigger effect. Now, you can add all that context, but the Supreme Court, I think, has signaled that the point of the Brandenburg test is that it's quite protective of speech. And so, we don't extrapolate based on context. We really require 
the words in and of themselves at that moment to be of a particular severity. And the other, I think, uh, complication for the plaintiffs is that Trump and other political figures have their own strong First Amendment interest, right? You know, one might say, look, Trump has to be careful about what he says because he's the president and his words have impact. On the other hand, maybe Trump, like any president, like any political figure, needs extra First Amendment protections because, you know, core political speech is even more core when it's from our political leaders. So I, I think the First Amendment issues here are, are very are going to be very difficult for the, uh, the the plaintiffs to uh, to overcome. But one thing that I found surprising was that Judge Maida didn't spend as much of the argument on the First Amendment as I thought the issue calls for. I don't know if that means he's decided that it's not a bar, or he's already made up his mind, or or what what that means. So uh, let me work backwards from this because I think Alan raises a bunch of interesting points on the question of why he didn't spend a lot of time on the First Amendment question, I think that was because he kind of folded the First Amendment question into his discussion, which was quite lengthy, of conspiracy, because actually the allegation here is not that the president engaged in incitement, but that the president conspired with people. And so the real question that he confronts is can the overt acts of a conspiracy be first amendment protect otherwise first amendment protected speech in a public forum by a political candidate and office holder and that puts a i, I think he treated a lot of these issues through the the conspiracy lens uh, that said look i am much more confident that donald trump is going to be dismissed from this case on first amendment grounds than I am, then he is going to be dismissed on presidential immunity grounds. And the reason, and I have had a uh, more than 20-year campaign to uh, discredit Brandenburg, the reason is that Brandenburg is super protective of all kinds of things. I think it's wrong. I think if you go out and say, you know, wink, wink, you should peacefully protest at the at the Capitol and everybody knows exactly what you mean and they go and peacefully protest at the Capitol, by which we mean beating up a bunch of cops and breaking a bunch of things. Uh, I don't really believe the First Amendment should be read to protect that. And I think context should matter and the overall environment in which people say things uh, should affect whether you consider them threats or, or incitements. But uh, they don't. And I think Alan has correctly described the protectiveness of Brandenburg. And so I think the, it's very likely that Judge Mehta or the D.C. Circuit or certainly the Supreme Court will look at this and say, to the extent that you read the conspiracy law to reach a president making a speech in public that does not itself call for violence, and you impute to him, based on contextual factors, all kinds of things, even if you impute them rightly, uh, then the conspiracy statute, to the extent that it allows that, violates the First Amendment. I think that is the, the likeliest, the, the basis on which I am most confident that Donald Trump will be dismissed from this case. I do think, however, that, you know, that will be hugely disappointing to a lot of people like me who want to see him uh, held responsible. It will not make the case itself go away because there are lots of people like Oath Keepers and, you know, other defendants who, uh, whose 
you know, involvement in a conspiracy is a little bit less verbal. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the point of civil cases are probably not the best vehicle to holding Donald Trump accountable, if that is the goal. But before we move on, can one of you give the best argument that the plaintiffs have for why this case is not barred by the First Amendment? I can do that. Um, The argument is that a president, you know, to be a part of a conspiracy, to be guilty of a conspiracy or liable for a conspiracy, there has to be an invitation to join the conspiracy. It has to be, there has to be a meeting of the minds between the groups, the participants, and there has to be overt acts. Uh, And so Donald Trump gives a speech in which he says, you got to fight. You're not going to have a country anymore. We're going to go to the Capitol. Uh, We're going to give them, show them what we think. And we're going to, and if you don't do that, you're not going to have a country anymore. And you got to be strong and tough, says all those things. All the, and now we're going to go to the Capitol and all these people go to the Capitol and they attack things and attack people. And the president allows them to do that without calling them off for several hours. And so there you have a, a meeting of the minds as to purpose uh, and you have overt acts taken. Uh, and to the extent that he may have been unconnected or appalled, he doesn't make any effort to stop it. That's the plaintiff's argument. And isn't the content of the speech there serving a different function from the question of whether or not the entire suit is barred by the First Amendment? Because in this case, the content of the speech is an element of the conspiracy. Correct. So deciding that the that the First Amendment bars this entirely is is essentially, and I think the Trump's lawyer said this specifically, claiming that the statute is overly broad and violates the First Amendment because it's impossible to look at this type of speech as an element in the conspiracy claim. Well, overly broad as applied to this situation. Um, Look, I mean, I think, you know, if you change a bunch of words in Trump's speech and you say he comes out there and throws flowers and talks about peace, love and tofu and then the and says, and we're going to go to the Capitol and spread love. And you hypothesize that he means all that very earnestly. And then the crowd goes and storms the Capitol. You would agree with Trump's lawyers, right? You to impute conspiracy to that both violates the terms of the conspiracy statute, which is to say there's not obviously a meeting of the minds, but also to the extent that you apply conspiracy liability that way, uh, that would, in my view, violate the First Amendment. And so you're in a weird line drawing exercise. On the other hand, if Trump had said, I want you all to have a meeting with the minds of of the minds with me right now, I think we're all going to agree to march to the Capitol and commit illegal acts of violence there, uh, everybody would agree with the plaintiffs that, that, you know, the First Amendment does not. So the, the question is a question of how specific the speech has to be or how vague it has to be before you're within the ambit of where the First Amendment limits the application of conspiracy law. Right. And the plaintiffs are arguing, just for clarity, the the plaintiffs are arguing that you can't ignore the context that Alan was talking about earlier because effectively, these are my words, not theirs, but it is an absurdist view of the First Amendment and what Brandenburg should 
protect to say, okay, unless you use these exact buzzwords, you'll definitely be protected. That shouldn't possibly be the rule because then whoever wants to commit unlawful acts can just arrange their speech in such a way as to avoid those sorts of buzzwords. All right. Well, there is a lot more to discuss, but I think for now we will have to leave it here. Thanks very much, Ellen and Ben. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.